All right, brothers and sisters, let's open up to Ephesians once more, the New Testament book of Ephesians. We're going to chapter 1 once again, and here in just a moment, our text will be verses 15 through 20. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Now, I want to give a compliment uh, and an encouragement to Dwayne, our music minister, as well as our praise team and our video guys in the back, because if you'll pay attention to your bulletin, that second song was not the one listed on our bulletin, uh, but they changed it on the fly because they saw my sermon title and my sermon text, which fits extraordinarily well with this. And so I want to thank them for doing that because it's so appropriate. We sang that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, and this is what we're coming to in our text in Ephesians. That text comes directly, the text of that song comes directly from this passage here in Ephesians that we're looking at today. And so thank you guys for that. Now, I said, I think it was two weeks ago, that I wanted to spend three weeks on Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, but the more I looked at it after two sermons, I believe it's time for us to move on. There are other things that we could explore there in verses 3 through 14. Remember, that's that densely packed, longest sentence in the Bible in the original Greek passage. Uh, There's so much to chew on there. Uh, But I felt like we had addressed most of the things that would be helpful for us here, at least in a Sunday morning sermon setting. So we're going on to verses 15 through 20 today. We're going to look at a prayer that Paul writes out to the Ephesians in his pastoral affection for them, in his love for them as his spiritual children. He prays for them often, which you would expect. But here, he not only tells them, I've been praying for you, he tells them what he's been praying for them. Do you ever do that for your brothers or sisters in Christ? And I'm not just saying tell someone you're praying for them, but tell them what you're praying for them. It's a wonderful and underrated way to encourage one another in Christ. To not just say, I'm praying for you, but to say, I've been praying this specifically for you. This is what I have been saying to the Lord about you. I'd encourage you to do that sometime and encourage someone with those words, the specific ways that you've been praying for them. And so as we look at what Paul prays for the Ephesians, there are a number of lessons and insights for us to take away. Let's look at our text. I'm going to read verses 15 through 20 here of Ephesians chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. He writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now I want to look at a few aspects of this prayer that Paul writes out and tells the Ephesians that he's praying this specifically for them. First, I want to draw your attention back to verse 17. Go there in the text with me. Verse 17, did you notice how he prays that God 
may give you, he's speaking to the Ephesians here, I pray that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation. I want to focus in on that for a second. Paul prays this for the Ephesians. I've been praying this this week. I've been praying this for myself. I've been praying this for you. I've prayed, first and foremost, I've prayed that God would help us to understand what this actually means. Because this is kind of confusing. I'll tell you why here in just a second. I've been praying, God, help us understand what this means. But I've also been praying, and probably more importantly, been praying for God to help us to experience this in our hearts. Whatever this is, that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this might initially sound confusing to you, because it initially did to me. Not just this time, but... I remember the first time I really thought through this passage. It must have been years and years ago. But the the thought immediately comes to us that, wait a second, I'm a Christian. And if I'm a Christian, I already have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me, right? If I'm a Christian, I've already got the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me. And that's true. And Paul is clearly writing to Christians here. So what can he mean when he says he wants God to give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What does that mean? I don't know about your translation. I'm reading from the ESV here. Their spirit is capitalized. The spirit, which means the Holy Spirit, that God would give them the spirit, capital S, of wisdom and revelation. What does that mean if I already have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me? Well, I'll tell you, Some translations don't capitalize the word spirit here. You see, in the original Greek, they didn't use capital letters. And so that decision has to be made fully out of context. It's context. It's all up to the context of the decision you make whether or not to capitalize the word spirit here or elsewhere in our New Testaments. Because if it just says spirit, it could be talking about our spirit, which in some cases is not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit inside of us, the spirit of a man, so to speak. Or you might say um, to someone, oh, you've got a spirit of gentleness, or you've got, you've got a spirit of such and such about you, right? So it's not always a capital S. It all has to do with context. Now, if you go purchase a Greek New Testament somewhere from a Christian bookstore, you will see that some of those do have capital letters, but those are not original. Those People who made up those Greek New Testaments have taken the original manuscripts and made their own interpretive decisions on where to place those capital letters. And so it's all up to context. Some translations of our modern Bibles have a capital S here for spirit. Some don't. Which is it? How are we supposed to make this decision? That could be an explanation of how to understand this, that it's not supposed to be a capital S spirit. It's just supposed to be that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And if that's the case, what well, solves that problem of me already having the Holy Spirit and then Paul praying this for them? Now, Paul could also simply mean that there is a way for us to have more of the Spirit. There's a way for us to have more of the Holy Spirit, right? For example, in this same book, in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, do not be filled with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled instead with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, implying there's degrees, right? You could be more or less filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I think what's also helpful here is Ephesians 3. Turn over just perhaps one page in your Bibles to Ephesians 3 and look with me at verses 3 through 5. Ephesians 3, we're going to look at verses 3 through 5, which I think is helpful here in understanding what we're trying to understand in chapter 1. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 3. Paul there says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Now there's that word revelation that we've just seen in chapter 1. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul says in Ephesians 3.3, The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Verse 4, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now notice in that text, the Holy Spirit revealed the mystery of Christ, revealed, revelation, right? Those two words are are together. The Holy Spirit revealed the mystery of Christ to whom? It says the apostles and prophets. Now that's a special category of people. The revelation given to the apostles becomes our New Testament, right? They write authoritatively, inspired by the Holy Spirit. They write Holy Scripture. We do not receive that same kind of revelation today. That was specifically given to the apostles and prophets to write Holy Scripture, authoritative Scripture. But notice in verse 4 how Paul says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You can perceive it. In other words, let me ask you this. When you read the Bible, do you perceive in your heart and in your mind that these are not just words from some guy named Paul, but that they are the very words of God? When you read the Bible, do you recognize the divine qualities of the words and the message That's what Paul is praying for here in Ephesians 1. Go back to Ephesians 1 now, where he's praying that God would give them the spirit, verse 17, of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul is saying, I pray that God would grant you to have spiritual senses or by the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you to perceive when you read God's word that it's his revelation, that it is really supernatural Words of wisdom. Because if you perceive that, if you look at God's word and from your heart perceive this is God's word, this is supernatural revelation from God, if you perceive that, you will have a hunger and a thirst for it. If you perceive that, you will want to read it more and more. You will want to do what it says. You'll want to obey it. You'll want to apply it to your life. You'll want others to read it and to know it. And you will want to memorize it and store it away in your mind and in your heart. And so my prayer for us is that God would grant us, just like Paul prayed, that God would grant us this perception, the ability to perceive this spiritual sense or by the Holy Spirit a sense that this is God's word, that this is what he claims it is. And if it is, we want it. I pray all the time for Columbia Christian Church. It's one of the first things I pray every day in the morning, that God would give each one of us a hunger and a thirst for him and his word. 
That's what I want for each and every one of you. That you would have a hunger and a thirst for him and for his word. That you would long for it like Peter says in 1 Peter. Like a newborn baby craves milk. You would long for the word. That we would long for more of God. That we would want God. And that we wouldn't be satisfied until we have him. And that we'd be constantly chasing after him instead of chasing after these little pleasures of the world and being satisfied with those when we could have the greatest pleasure there is. Oh, that God would grant us a hunger and a thirst for him and his word. If every single one of us had it, there'd be a revival in here. A revival, right? We wouldn't have to hold a revival and invite a speaker in and call it a revival. One would happen because God granted it. Let's pray that. Let's pray that God would start it with me, right? That God would give me, I'm not talking just me, I'm talking to every one of us, right? Every one of us pray that God would start it with us. That God would give us a hunger and a thirst for him and his word that eclipses everything else. Ian Murray, in his his book about revival called Pentecost Today, the, the question is, can Pentecost happen today? It's a book about revival and what you notice when revivals happen. Ian Murray studied revivals all across the world over the, the last few centuries. And he said, what you, what you see happens when a genuine revival occurs, when God sends genuine revival, is people start getting a hunger and a thirst for God and for his word. And that hunger and that thirst eclipse, eclipses everything else. It starts, it starts collecting among us. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that spreads. It's contagious, right? That's what we want. And so Paul prays for them, and I'm praying for us, that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now go to verse 18 with me. Notice what he says in verse 18. This is where we get that hymn that we sung earlier, where he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The eyes of your hearts. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The eyes of your heart. Did you know your heart has eyes? Your heart has eyes, right? What does this actually mean? We got to stop and ask ourselves that question. You see, there's, there's two errors that Bible readers often make. Some of us are so familiar with the Bible and with phrases like, like this, and we, we sing in church all the time, open the eyes of my heart. Some of us are so familiar with this stuff that we don't stop to think about what it actually means. We just kind of assume that we know what it means, but we've never stopped to ask, what does this really mean? Others of us who are newer to Bible reading, we come across a phrase like this and we say, well, that doesn't make sense along with all kinds of other stuff in this book. So I'm I'm just going to keep on trucking, right? In my Bible reading and not get tripped up. But we have to develop the habit of seeing a striking phrase in the Bible and stopping ourselves and asking, what does that really mean? And meditating on it, letting it hit us, letting it wash over us, stopping and saying, what does that mean? Not just what does it mean, but what does it mean for my life? Let's think about it for a second. The eyes of our hearts One of the things that that means is that there is a spiritual sight by which we see God. If our hearts have eyes, then there is a spiritual sight by which we see God. And it's not like seeing with your physical eyes. The Bible does this all the time. It'll take something that every human being experiences physically, 
But say, for us, it's spiritual. Like, for instance, at the end of Ephesians, he'll say that we're in a battle. We're in a war. And we do not fight against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. And so we don't fight with physical weapons, right? We fight with spiritual weapons. We'll get into that, Lord willing, in a few weeks or months, however long it takes us to get there to the end of Ephesians. But Scripture tells us that God is invisible. God is invisible. See, you, you might want to see God with your physical eyes, but you can't. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16. Paul says, He, God, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, and then watch this part, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. No one has ever seen God, and no one can see him. I mean, that's an unambiguous statement, and it's not alone. Two times in our New Testament, the Apostle John says, no one has ever seen God. You can't see him with your physical eyes. He's invisible. He's a spirit, right? And so we can't know God by sight. We must come to know him by other means, the eyes of our hearts. This is an inner knowledge of God. An inner knowledge of God. And the way you come to see God is through his word. The way you come to see God is through the Bible. God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. And so if you want to know God, it's very simple. Read your Bible. You want to know God, go to the Bible. Now it must be said... This knowledge is not just a knowledge of the right facts. Knowing God is not just about knowing the right facts. Satan knows his Bible better than every single person in this room. Satan knows his Bible better than all of us. He's been around longer than every single one of us. He's more familiar with it than all of us. He knows the true facts better than all of us, but he uses that knowledge to hate and destroy people. That knowledge does not save him. This knowledge of God must lead us to love him. To taste and see that he is good, Psalm 34. To desire him more and more. To have what we call, what we talked about earlier, a hunger and a thirst for him because of what we know. Read through the Psalms sometime and notice David. You will see, as you read through the Psalms, David is a man who not only knew the truth about God, he knew God. He knew his God. Intimately. He loved him. He had an intense hunger and thirst for more and more of God. That's what we want. That's where the knowledge has to lead. Have you ever wondered... Why God wants us to sing when we come to church. Why does God want us to sing? What's his fixation on singing? Why why that? Why do do we need to do that in every church service? There's tons and tons of churches, and all of them, they're singing. Why, Why is God so fixated on singing? Well, singing is a way of letting out our love for God. 
It's a way of expressing it. We learn about him, and then we express the wonder and the glory and the joy we receive from knowing what we know. C.S. Lewis called this the proper end or the proper consummation of true knowledge of God. It has to be expressed. If you find joy in anything, not just of God, but in anything, its proper consummation is telling someone about it, right? Expressing that joy. Well, more so than anything else, the, the glory of God. If you come to know the truth about God, that knowledge has to be expressed. If it's real, if it's deep, if it's true, if if you love him, that knowledge has to be expressed and fulfilled and consummated by some kind of form of expression. And singing is probably the best one that we have. It starts with knowledge, but it must not stay there. That knowledge of God must produce the fruit of worship from the heart. And so, because of that, you should be concerned if your heart is never stirred up when we sing about the glory of God and the truth of the gospel. Now, let me say that again, because this is eternally dead serious. You should be concerned for yourself if your heart is never stirred up when we sing about the glory of God and the truth of the gospel. You should be concerned about your own salvation. Examine yourself here. If the truths in these songs do not warm your heart and make you feel thankful to God, if it does not make you feel love for God, that could be evidence that you have never really been born again. It could be. Do not bypass that. Do not let that go in one ear and out the other. Perhaps you've been thinking you're a Christian this whole time because you got baptized a long time ago and you come to church pretty regular. But if you never feel anything when we sing or you have no desire at all to sing, that's a red flag, brothers and sisters. And I might, I might need to say more brothers than sisters, honestly, in that. It's a red flag. But all this to say... To know God, we must see him with the eyes of our hearts. Our hearts have eyes. We've got to perceive God and see him with spiritual eyes, spiritual sight. Now, notice what he says after that, verse 18 and following. He says, that you may know, that you may have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, and then he lists three things. We're going to hit them in turn. Three things that Paul wants them to know. He's praying to God that they would know three things. Number one comes in verse 18. They would know what is the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. Paul wants them to know that. God wants us to know the hope to which he has called us. Now the word hope in the Bible is not used in the way that we often use it today. A lot of times when we say the word hope in our everyday conversations, we'll say something like, I hope it doesn't rain today, or I hope I get something nice for Christmas, right? It's wishful thinking, optimism may or may not happen. But in the Bible, when you see the word hope, it's a conviction of something that God has promised in the future. It's a confident expectation, not wishful thinking. And so, for example, in Romans 5, 2, Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Or in Colossians 1.27, which says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Or perhaps the most helpful one, 
I think, Hebrews 11, verse 1, where it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith, that's what faith is. It's the assurance of things that we hope for. What is that? What's well, a conviction of things not seen? Conviction, a confidence. And so what is this hope? Paul wants them to know, God wants us to know, what is the hope to which he has called you? Well, this hope, there's all kinds of pieces to it. It's like a multifaceted diamond. There's all kinds of blessings in it. So, for example, we have a confident hope that one day Jesus will return and we will live with him in paradise. We stake our lives on this hope. We have a confident hope that we are not defined by our sins and our failures. We have a confident hope, in fact, that on Judgment Day, our sins will not be counted against us because they were already counted against Christ. We have the hope that one day we will have new perfected bodies which will last for all eternity. We have the hope that one day we will again see our loved ones who have died in Christ. We have the hope that one day all the unfulfilled desires of our hearts will be satisfied. We have the hope that all of these things entail, but we even have hopes that are not deferred until eternity. We have hopes for here and now. We have the hope that Jesus can satisfy our hearts here and now in a way that no other earthly pleasure can. We have the hope that when we come to Christ, we also become part of his body, the church. We gain a family. And we have the hope that We have the power within us right now to defeat sin and to put these sinful desires within us to death by the Holy Spirit. That hope, it's like a multifaceted diamond. Paul wants them to know, God wants us to know the hope to which he has called you. Second, he wants them to know, and God wants us to know, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He wants us to know the inheritance that is coming to us. The inheritance. Now, we talked about this at length last week, and so we're not going to talk too fully about the inheritance this week. Last week's sermon includes a lot of talk about our inheritance that's coming to us. But for those who come to Jesus, God adopts them into his family. If you come to Jesus, God adopts you into his family. And when that happens, you come into an inheritance that will be given to you from your father who just so happens to be the owner of everything in the universe. An inheritance that comes to us from our new father, our adoptive father, who just like a a proper adoption brings us into his family and we are now just as much children as if we were naturally, getting an inheritance just as a natural child would, and that inheritance comes from the father of everything, the creator and ruler of the universe, the one who is richer than all CEOs and kings of earth combined. And so he wants us to know the inheritance that is coming to us. And third, he wants us to know, look at the end of, or look at verse 19. He wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He wants us to know the power that is working for us. Now notice what it says about this power in verse 20. Verse 20, what's it say about this power that's working for us? It says this power is the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. 
The power that God is working for you is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That is an encouraging thought. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, God is working for or toward me. Remember that part of the hope that we talked about just a minute ago, part of the hope we've been called to is that we have the power to defeat sin. You remember that? We have the power to defeat sin. Well, if it's powerful enough to defeat death, is it powerful enough to defeat sin? You better believe it is. If it's powerful enough to defeat death itself, and that power is powerful enough to defeat the sins in my life, And this power, Paul says in verse 19, it is immeasurably great. The immeasurable greatness of this power. You cannot measure it. It is so great you can't measure it. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 3. Look over there one more time with me at Ephesians 3 in verse 20. Verse 20. Now, this is a kind of benediction that he gives at the end of chapter 3 before moving on to kind of a different topic in chapter 4. So, chapter 3, verse 20, there in Ephesians, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Look at that. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's how powerful God is. He is able to do much more than all you could ask, or the NIV says, all you can imagine. So imagine as big as you can. Stretch your imagination. Try to think of something that you would have thought would have been impossible, and God can do more than that. Stretch your imagination to as big as it will go. Ask God for as much as you can think to ask. And it says God is able to do far more than that. No matter how much you ask for, no matter how much you can imagine, God is able to do more. I once heard a man pray something that never left my mind because it was such a big prayer. He was just praying his normal prayer. And this is a man that I I didn't know very well. I'd only met him really once. And he was coming to visit the University of Kentucky. He was kind of an itinerant campus minister. We were praying with him one day. And he asked that God would save Africa, like the continent. He would save all of them. And I just kind of stopped him. I was like, well, that's he, he can't do that. Well, I guess he could. But I've never heard anybody ask like that. It was just huge. It was bigger than I even had capacity to understand at the time. So it it just really stuck in my mind. God is able to do more than all you ask or imagine. Understand that. And so stretch your imagination and ask big, and he's able to do more than all of it. Abundantly more. And then it says, according to the power of That is at work within us. It's the same deal that he's talking about here in verses 19 and 20. God wants you to know this power. God wants you to walk around every day keenly aware that this power is yours. Not because you're powerful, because he is powerful in you. If this power that God is giving us, if it has this kind of strength, if it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, if this is the power God is working for me and in me, I can face anything. I can face anything. If this is God's power for me, I can face cancer. 
I can face job loss. I can face depression or anxiety. I can face chronic pain. If this is God's power, I can face being publicly slandered. I can face attacks from people at work. I can face a hard conversation I need to have with a family member. I can face parenting. I can face the battle I need to fight to be rid of this addiction. I can face confessing my darkest sins to someone else. If this is God's power, I can face anything. Because that's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And if it's got power over death itself, it's got power over everything. That's the power that we have working for us and in us. And he wants us to know it. He wants us to know it. And so this is my prayer for you all. In the same way that it's, it's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, right? He tells them not only that he's praying for them, he tells them what he's praying for them. I pray that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that God would open the eyes of our hearts, that our hearts would be enlightened to see him, to perceive him in his word, and to know To know the hope to which he has called us. To know the inheritance that we have coming to us. And to know his immeasurably great power that is at work for us and in us. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's my prayer for all of us. May it be answered in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to do something right now that we do every week. We're going to go to God in prayer after his words to us. But here's what I would encourage you to do. Let that text fuel your prayer right now. Every week we spend a little bit of time in silent prayer responding to the Lord after his words to us. But during this time of prayer, let your prayer be fueled by those words of Paul's prayer right now. Asking that God would give the spirit of revelation and wisdom. Asking that he would help us to know those things, right? That he would open the eyes of our hearts. Let's ask him that right now in our prayers as we go to him and as we respond to what we just heard from God's word. And then after a few moments of silent individual prayer, we'll come back and we'll have an invitation time for anyone who needs to respond to God's word publicly. Let's pray.